ever believed something but didn't have any practical evidence to prove your belief was true? Well, until the last century or so, Christians had to endure criticism for believing the Bible even though the historical or archaeological record could not find any proof that the Hittites or two significant leaders mentioned in the Bible even existed. But thanks to some cool discoveries you'll learn about in today's episode, those critics have been silenced. Let's dive in to explore three evidence-based reasons to believe the Bible is true. As with the first two episodes in this series, my dad Harry Schaefer will be your guide on this adventure. Here's Harry. If the Bible is true, every statement in it must be true, even if it's not the focus of the passage. Like we saw in the predictive prophecies, a prophecy on Tyre and a prophecy on Babylon, that was the focus of the passage. But even if it's incidental to the passage, the statements would have to be true. Here's where, in the past, many critics of the Bible thought that they could prove that the Bible made false statements. The critics, however, were spectacularly and decisively proven to be wrong. We're going to look at three examples of this. The first is about a group of people called the Hittites. There's no passage in the Bible that talks about the Hittites. There's no description of them. There's no discussion about them. There's no prophecies about them. The word Hittite, or the plural Hittites, does occur 47 times in the Old Testament. That'd be between Genesis and and Ezekiel. The first occurrence is typical of all of the occurrences, so we'll look at that, which is just a couple of verses in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15 describes the covenant that God made with Abraham, and at the end of the chapter, we find this, beginning with verse 18. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, and the Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. It's just a list of people that are living in the land that God was going to give to Abraham and his descendants. And so it's just a, it's just a name in a list. Uh, most of the references to the Hittites are exactly like this. They're part of a list of people who live in the land that God promised to Abraham. Sometimes it, the, the word Hittite appears as an identification of an individual, such as Ephron the Hittite in Genesis 23.10 or Uriah the Hittite in 2 Samuel 11.3. Now that seems pretty insignificant, so where would the problem be? Well, the supposed problem began with a man named J.G. Eichhorn. Eichhorn was born in Germany in 1752 was a Protestant theologian who taught and wrote in Germany until his death in 1827. He developed what's became known as higher criticism. Higher criticism became prevalent later on, but he's the one that started it. His study and interpretation of the Bible began with his assumption that there can be no such thing as a supernatural event or a miracle. These have to be explained in the light of superstitious beliefs of the day. He did not believe the Bible was true, and he set out to prove that. After him, a flood of German scholars following the higher criticism line of thinking launched an all-out attack on the inspiration and truthfulness of the Bible throughout the 1800s and into the 20th century. The biblical reference to the Hittites was one of their favorite attacks on the integrity of the Bible. You see, the problem was that while the Bible repeatedly mentions the Hittites, the historical and archaeological record was absolutely silent about them. There was no evidence that such a people ever existed. If you believe that the Bible's true, how do you defend against an attack like that? 
you would have to say that just because there's no evidence that they existed doesn't mean that they didn't exist. Evidence just hasn't been found yet. We would believe that biblical references to the Hittites, because we, it'd be based, we would believe that because it's based on the truthfulness of all the other biblical statements, like the predictive prophecy. But that's about all you could say. Then almost overnight, everything changed. In 1906, an archaeologist named Hugo Winkler began excavating a previously unknown ruin in today's Turkey. It turned out to be the capital city of a powerful empire that covered most of Turkey, northern Mesopotamia, and all the way to northern Syria. This empire has since, since been positively identified as the Hittite Empire. There are records on clay tablets that were found there and also in Egypt in 1884 and in Syria in 1887, and they show that the Hittite, Hittite Empire lasted from about 1750 BC to 1160 BC, and it was a superpower on a par with Egypt. The tablets that were found in Egypt and Syria were actually copies of treaties that were between Egypt and between the people living in Syria and the Hittites. The Hittites not only existed, but they were a dominant force in the world at the time. The Bible's statements about the Hittites were true. Another example of this same kind is found in Daniel chapter 5. And it's in reference to a man named Belshazzar. And here's what chapter 5 says in the first few verses. Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines might drink therein. And then they brought out the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes and his wives and the concubines drank in them. So here we have this guy identified, Belshazzar, as the king of Babylon. And it says here in the passage that his father is Nebuchadnezzar. Well, the higher critics mock the Bible for these references to Belshazzar because, again, there was no historical or archaeological record of any Babylonian king or even a family member of the Babylonian kings named Belshazzar. Just like with the Hittites, previously silent record suddenly spoke and confirmed the biblical account. In 1879, the British Museum acquired a clay tablet that became known as the Nabonidus Chronicle. It's the record of the reign of Nabonidus as the last king of Babylon. This tablet is the first historical record that names Belshazzar at all. It tells how Belshazzar, who the tablet identifies as the son of Nabonidus, Belshazzar helped his father become king. Belshazzar's mother seems to be the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, making Belshazzar Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. After becoming king, Nabonidus names Belshazzar to reign in Babylon as regent, and he, Nabonidus, left Babylon for the next 10 years. He really didn't want to reign as king. He went and retired. Nabonidus then, though officially the king, was not in Babylon when it fell in 539. Belshazzar was killed the night the city fell in October of 539 BC. When we compare the biblical account in Daniel 5 to the historical record, the biblical account is verified in every detail. Belshazzar is reigning in Babylon as the king and has been for 10 years. Belshazzar was probably the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, and so he would be the son of Nebuchadnezzar in the same sense 
that Jesus is the son of David, not his literal son, but his direct descendant. Belshazzar's date of death is listed as the same night that Babylon fell, which is what verse 30 says. Verse 30 in chapter 5 says this, uh, in that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. The historical account even explains what happened, uh, what's, what's in verse 29, which we didn't read yet, but this is what 29 says. Then commanded Belshazzar that they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now that seems kind of odd, but when you consider that in the historical record, Nabonidus was the king. So he's the first ruler and his son Belshazzar is his regent. He's ruling in Babylon. So he's the second ruler. The third ruler is the next open slot. And so that's where, why Daniel is made the third ruler in the kingdom. So that, ex, that would explain that too. Officially, Nabonidus was the king, but Belshazzar was the regent. The higher critics again were wrong, and the Bible was correct all along. The third example comes from the New Testament, and it concerns Pontius Pilate. All four of the Gospels give a detailed account of Jesus' trial before Pilate. That would be the night before the crucifixion. Pilate's also mentioned three times in Acts, and one time by Paul in 1 Timothy. However, Pilate's name was never found in the historical record. This allowed the higher critics to make fun of the Bible again by saying that the gospel writers just made him up. They just made this character up. He didn't really exist. Well, why was there no record, they would say, of this Roman ruler, if he really existed, if he was so prominent? And there was no record until 1961, which is a lot later date than some of these other things. So all the way to 1961, there's no record of Pontius Pilate. But this all changed when a team of Italian archaeologists led by Dr. Antonio Frova were working in Caesarea. They were extracting or excavating in the area of an ancient theater, and they uncovered a limestone block. And it seems to be a dedication to Augustus, who would have been the Caesar at the time. And it was the dedication was made by, quote, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. That's what it said on the block. This became known as the Pilate Stone, and it's, that's what it's called today. And it's evidence from Pilate's own time and proves beyond doubt that this was a Roman governor in Judea. He was named Pontius Pilate. He was early in the first century AD. Since then, also, there have been coins found with Pilate's image on them and his name inscribed on them. So once again, the critics have been silenced and the biblical account is verified. The critics have been silenced and the biblical account is verified. Ooh, that statement gives me chills. There are forces at work in this world to discredit God, the Bible, and anyone who believes in the God of the Bible. We, however, don't have to fear those forces. We don't have to fear the critics. We can be confident the Bible is the source of absolute truth because of the practical evidence found that proves the Hittites, Belshazzar, and Pilate existed. In addition, we can ground our confidence in the predictive prophecies we explored in episodes 66 and 67. But that's not all. In episode 68, we'll explore another reason to believe the Bible by diving into the realm of, wait for it, medicine. The episode will be linked in the show notes once it goes live. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way you can thank me is by leaving a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. Not only will it help me know what you're thinking, but it will also help others on a quest to write a novel discover the show. After you leave that review, I invite you to click on over to authordkdrake.com. 
There you can become a DK Drake Insider, secure your free starter library, and access all the books from the Dragonstalker Bloodline Saga that are available for sale on Amazon. In the meantime, I dare you not to dream of dragons tonight. <laughs>